We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. The NBA is back. Where else can a city this loud be this left on? And 30 feet is still in range. Where else is history? Still in the making. The NBA, only here. Season begins December 22nd on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. Crossing route, Gurley makes the catch 20. First down, he hurdles. Far side of the field, stays on his feet. Inside the 10, Todd Gurley making his case for MVP. He throws back shoulder, Higby reaches out and makes an incredible catch for a first down. Off his back foot, he throws to the end zone. Cooper Cup leaping to make the catch. Out of bounds, he has it for six. He's got a knee-high snap, looking left. Now over the middle, he pump fakes. He rolls to his right with Connor Barwin pursuing. He knocks him down. The ball is thrown up in the air and batted away. Incomplete. The Rams defense clinches it. Goff will come on the field for victory formation. The Rams sideline across the field from us erupts in celebration. And so the playoffs are coming back to L.A. This January at the Coliseum. We, not me, versus the NFC. And for the first time since 2003, the Rams are NFC West champions. Welcome to Rams Talk Radio. This is managing editor Derek C. Apollo for today's Rams Talk Radio podcast. Folks, we got some really, really great guests. I'm super excited for what we have on on board here today. Um, before we get there, I need to ask you to head over to iTunes. We can really use that five-star review also. Subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. Please help us out there. You can find us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Google Play, Android, and Player FM. Also, don't forget we are now on the air online at iebeatradio.com, Wednesdays, Saturdays, and Sundays at 10 a.m. Pacific time. Again, that's iebeatradio.com on Wednesdays, Saturdays, and Sundays. Appearing today as part of our tour in the league is Bobby Belt from Cowboys Cast. Really knowledgeable Cowboys guy. You can call the Cowboys historian. We're, we're super glad to have him on the show today. Then later on, we'll welcome Sam Marco, the host of uh, Perfectville, a podcast covering the Miami Dolphins, to get the update on them. 
Before we started, we want to thank one of the sponsors that made our show possible. Most of us who listen to the show, not everybody, are practically addicted to anything Los Angeles Rams. Well, if you want to learn more about the Rams' history with a bit of a personal touch, check out Jim Hawk's Hollywood's team, Grit, Glamour, and the 1950s Los Angeles Rams. The book tells the story of the 1950s Rams through the lens of Jim's dad, John, who was an offensive lineman for the team from 1953 to 1957. As he approached Father's Day, check out his son's story of his father and the team he played for in an era of glitz, glamour, and future Hall of Famers. Read about players like Norm Van Brocklin, Elway, Crazy Lakes Hirsch, Tom Fears, and Les Richter in this story spanning the 1950s Los Angeles Rams. You can find Hawk's book online at hollywoodsteam.com and on Twitter at hollywoodsteam. It's available in both hardback and electronic format at Amazon and, and Barnes & Noble. Also, it's available through various other booksellers on the internet. Folks, read it. Trust me. It's worth it. If you are a history guy, if you love the lore of Rams history, getting to know these players, check out this story. It's worth every penny. It's not an expensive book at all. It's also a great story about a father and the legacy he left behind. Again, this is all of his teen grit glamour in the 1950s Los Angeles Rams by Jim Hawk. It's worth your time. All right. So first on today's show, Bobby Belt. He's the host of Cowboys Cast, Cowboys Cast Podcast. Bobby, welcome to the show. We're so glad to have you here today. Absolutely. Glad we could make it work. Sorry for my uh, previous Skype drama. Oh, folks, he's, uh, he's referencing something that was uh, really no big deal. What happened was, well, we just couldn't get Skype to work. <laughs> Basically, I don't know how to use technology. That's kind of the long and the short of it. I wasn't going to say that. I wasn't going <laughs> to say that. Because you're a kind host. I'll say it as the uh, self-aware guest. So we're glad to have you here today. And I guess immediately right away, the, the instant question for anybody on the outside looking in is going to be what on earth happened between the Cowboys and Des Bryant to where they had this part of the ways. Basically okay. what happened with Des Bryant was that uh, Stephen Jones had determined that he was no longer good enough to justify the negative attention that he brings and the distractions that he brings. And I don't think he's necessarily the same distraction he was seven years ago. Uh, but he's no longer the player he was seven years ago either, or even four years ago. And so ultimately, I think Stephen Jones leading the charge and ultimately uh, with uh, Scott Linehan in his back pocket kind of convincing Jerry and ultimately Jason Garrett as well to move on. And that's all it was, was just declining skills versus the drama that comes with him. Yeah, it was just the, you know, I mean, for instance, Ezekiel Elliott is much more of a trouble for them right now than Des Bryant was. But Des Bryant's not the player or, or making the plays that Ezekiel Elliott is for them. So they keep Ezekiel Elliott around and they say, you know what, Des, we can save $8 million and we can move on. So we're going to do that. Well, given the fact that Brian is yet to sign with the team, is it fair to ask if his skills have diminished to the point where no team will, wanna, will want the headaches he brings? It has dim- he has diminished some. There's no doubt about it. He's not the guy that signed that deal in the 2015 offseason. But uh, I, I don't think it's diminished to the point that uh, some people have purported recently. And I think the reason why he's unsigned is more, uh, you know, I, I had this discussion actually with one of the Cowboys players recently that, uh, you know, they had said that everybody kind of felt like Dez was done a little bit dirty in the sense that they could have done this back in February and they didn't. They did it in the middle of April when everybody was already stacking their boards and had signed their free agents and they were going to populate their team with whatever remaining draft picks. And now it's kind of like Dez is stuck hanging around waiting for a receiver to get injured. I truly believe had Dez been released at the beginning of February, he would have gotten any number of those deals, those big money deals that went to other receivers this offseason. That's not to say he would have gotten a deal as big as his current one, but, you know, like the deal Albert Wilson gets in Miami, sure, why couldn't Dez get that? I, I think people around the league still believe in Dez to that extent. 
Well, you mentioned Ezekiel Elliott. Well, his drama hurt the Cowboys last season. Have the Cowboys put behind them, or are they and are they planning to continue running the offense through him like they have in the past? Yeah, I mean, he'll still be the focal point of the offense, but I mean, a big line that's come from the Cowboys this offseason has been Dak friendly. That they've talked about everything they're doing is Dak friendly. And that they're really trying to kind of make things as, uh, you know, optimized to his skill set as they can. They've got Connor Williams in there now. He's up front, meant to kind of uh, make a difference for them, uh, or make a difference for da- uh, Dak in the sense that he's got that protection up front again. They went out and they signed receivers they thought more fit his skill set. They brought in Deontay Thompson, um, and they also brought in Alan Hearns, and they went ahead and moved on from Des Bryant. They drafted Michael Gallup. So they're doing their best to kind of create a friendly environment for Dak. So I still think they believe everything kind of begins and ends with, is Dak Prescott playing good football? Uh, But yeah, I think they're definitely going to be a run-first team, and they're going to lean on Ezekiel Elliott heavily if he can stay on the field. Well, how are the Cowboys evaluating Prescott right now? Are they confident that he's the guy to lead this franchise, or does he have the weapons to be successful? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, mean, yeah, they don't don't go revamp the entire offense to be Dak-friendly only to move on from him after this year if he struggles. They're they're committed. Their chips are all in with him. He's their guy. That's the one that they're committed to, and that's who they think, you know, that entire franchise believes in him completely. They believe in his makeup. They believe in his ability. They believe in his ability to rally the troops and and function as a locker room leader and – so, yeah, I think that's that's not a question. It, it, does he have all of his weapons? Yeah, I think he has enough to be successful, but, I mean, a lot of it depends on how much does Alan Hearn bounce back now that he's healthy and how quickly can Michael Gallup contribute. If those two things can happen, and if the Cowboys can make do with their little tight end group to replace Jason Witten with Dalton Schultz, Jeff Swaim, and Blake Jarwin, then, yeah, I, I think he's got the weapons there, and I think he'll perform well. Uh, and I think a big part of it is going to be, can Tyron Smith remain healthy? Because he's had those back problems recently. But I mean, if the offensive line is intact, I think Dak's going to win you football games because I think he can make the best of his, you know, the the talent around him at that point. But, you know, he's got to be able to, you know, have time to make things work. It can't be, you know, Adrian Claiborne coming off the edge and getting six sacks in a game and then the Cowboys tightening up and running nothing but, you know, six yard hitch routes for the rest of the season. Well, you mentioned confidence in Dak. Well, here's another question about confidence is, what about Jason Garrett right now? Are the Cowboys as confident in him as they have with the past coaches? Is his job in danger heading into 2018? Uh, You know, I I think Jason Garrett's been here past his expiration date, and I think a lot of people feel that way. The Cowboys have been completely committed. I think one more 500 or below season this year, and Garrett's gone. Um, and where they would turn after that, I don't know. I don't know that they have anybody in mind on the staff. Um, but I, I do think that this is kind of make or break for Garrett. I think that's also a big reason why you saw Rod Marinelli and Scott Linehan retained in the offseason. It's because I think the Cowboys viewed it as, look, we may have a lame duck coach here, and we don't want to bring in two new coordinators only to have them potentially get blown out by a new head coach the following year. So let's just you know give everybody one more shot. And then we'll move on if things don't go the right way. So, yeah, I, I think definitely if we're looking at an eight and eight season or below or potentially even just missing the playoffs, then, yeah, I think you could see Jason Garrett out of here. Well, what's really been the problem with him? You said he, he lived past his expiration date there. What's been the real issue concerning Jason Garrett and why he struggled at times in Dallas? In a sense, I think that there's been too much delegating. There's not been enough taking charge of either side of the ball. 
Um, and, and, and the offensive responsibilities were something that the team ultimately took away from him because he'd struggled with those. Um, so really, I mean, what, what he's out there for is as a leader of men, which he can do. He can be out there and lead those guys when things are going well. But a lot of, you know, a lot of the problems we've seen with players who leave the organization and some of these bitter divorces that happen is over the fact that there seems to be a sense of hypocrisy about Jason Garrett at times, or, or that, you know, people are kind of rolling their eyes at how many time, more times can we hear this, you know, trust the process mantra, or, you know, we're looking for the right kind of guy or any of the other, you know, patented Jason Garrett cliches that exist. Uh, I mean, I don't know if you saw the all or nothing documentary on the Cowboys, but in the very last episode, he's doing, you know, end of the year review with his coaching staff. And he kind of makes mention of some of you guys are going to be gone because I don't need people. I'm paraphrasing here, but basically says I don't need people who are going to roll their eyes at me behind my back when I'm saying things to the guys. And so, I mean, that that definitely sticks to this idea that there are some coaches that have been on the staff in recent years that didn't totally believe in Jason Garrett. And that probably caused some dissension with position groups, guys who whoever they were being coached by those coaches, those guys probably had, you know, struggled to adhere to what Jason Garrett was saying or totally respect what Jason Garrett was saying. And so, I mean, I think it's partially a little bit of an inmates running the asylum kind of thing. And, uh, you know, so in, in the sense that he's lost control at times and it'll be, you know, interesting to see if he's able to retain things because I, I've said this before about Jason Garrett, that his lasting legacy to this point is as the head coach of a team, Team that when faced with win or go home has consistently chosen go home for the last six years. Every time they get into one of those big games at the end of the season where it's like, hey, winning you're in or you know winning you're or losing you're out, they consistently get drubbed by you know twenty points or they have a critical mistake late and it's it's boneheaded things and that's where Jason Garrett is supposed to be at his best is as a leader of men in those types of moments and he hasn't been that guy. Now moving into the offseason now. What were the best and worst moves the Cowboys made in free agency, and, and who do you think will step in and make an impact right away? Uh, you know, I, I think worst move is I, I don't think it was time to move on from Des. But ultimately, I, I understand why it happened. I just I think that you know I, I don't know that your options were all that great otherwise. The second worst move may be not just nutting up and and you know getting done what needs to get done in order to get Earl Thomas here to play safety because safety's still a major question. Um, but in terms of their best moves, uh, you know, it's uh, Alan Hearns was a bargain two years for 12 million. And I think only like three of that's guaranteed. So, I mean, that is a bargain for sure. Um, I think that they drafted strong and, and addressed serious needs. And I think they got great value with guys like Connor Williams and Michael Gallup. And, uh, you know, I think they brought in some really strong undrafted free agents, even in Cameron Kelly out of uh, San Diego State, the safety and Charvarius Ward, the corner out of Middle Tennessee. So, uh, you know, they, they did really strong in the draft process. They didn't do a whole lot in free agency other than the Alan Hearns pickup. They signed Joe Thomas to be a spot linebacker for him off the Packers. But again, that's, you know, not really a starter. Um, I know a move that a lot of people were high on is them finally moving Byron Jones over to corner. But in terms of, you know, that's all personnel related. The best move, period, the franchise probably made this offseason was bringing in Chris Richard because Rod Marinelli is on his final season, I don't doubt. And getting Chris Richard after the Seahawks let him go as defensive coordinator, that's a big boost for their secondary this year. And I think it's also going to see a transition, a kind of changing of the guard where he gets a year to kind of get his feet wet before he takes over as defensive coordinator in the 2019 season. So the most important move they made probably wasn't even on the roster. It was Chris Richard being brought in as their passing game coordinator on defense and ultimately as their defensive coordinator in 2019. 
Now, you briefly mentioned the draft, and, and the one thing I, I agree with you, the Cowboys did a great job maneuvering through the draft. They picked up significant talent. What were their best and worst picks of the draft? And if, what, if any, position did they fail to address? You know, they didn't get a safety, and they really do need one. I mean, right now they've got Xavier Woods, who was a sixth-round pick last year, and probably Jeff Heath as their two starters. And Jeff Heath is a, a solid rotation piece, but he really shouldn't be starting. So safety is, a, is something they ignored. In terms of value, I think Connor Williams is probably the best pick they made from a value standpoint because they genuinely would have considered him, I think, at pick 19, and they were able to get him at 50. And there were a lot of people who thought Connor Williams was a top 20 pick for a lot of the year, and he ends up sliding all the way to them at 50. So that was a great pick. I think that was great value. Uh, I think Mike White actually getting him as late as they did uh, in the fifth round, I, I think that's a steal because there were a lot of people who thought Mike White would go in the second round, and that's a quarterback, of course. But, you know, you can never stack up enough of those as we see New England, you know, stack up chips and then trade them on and, and you know, get those that capital back. Um, so Mike White and Connor Williams are two big value picks. <laughs> if you look at it from the worst value, probably have to go to like Chris Covington in the sixth round out of Indiana, who a lot of people had as an undrafted guy, and they picked him in the sixth. But, uh, you know, Leighton Vander Esch is a definite first rounder in everybody's eyes. He was a top 20, 25 pick. I just don't know that I thought he was the best player on the board. But they needed a linebacker, and it was a draft thin on linebackers, so I understand why they did it. So uh, Leighton Vanderish is probably the one out of the top picks that was the closest to not being a steal, but I don't necessarily think it was a reach or, or a bad pick. Uh, the only one that was sort of a reach at all was, like I said, the sixth rounder, Chris Covington, and it's hard to complain too much about that. Well, uh, it, I was pretty impressed with it overall. I thought the Cowboys did a great job, especially when they got Vanderish. I'm, I'm, I'm a Vanderish guy. I was hoping the Rams would get him, in the, and uh, instead so they traded that pick away for, well, Brandon Cooks. Yeah, so, you know, I'm... I'm I, I'm on I'm on board Van Der Esch, believe it or not. Well, the, and I and I and look, I, I look at Van Der Esch this way. He is somebody who his ceiling is an all pro player. I just I, I don't project that right now. I don't project that he's gonna perform like an all pro player, but it's better to me than Cowboys fans notoriously label me as the taco hater. Where when you're picking Taco Charlton at twenty eight, you are picking a guy whose ceiling is maybe a starter in the NFL. I, I, I did not think Taco Charlton was a good player coming out of Michigan, and T.J. Watt was sitting there, and it was it was not good that they took Taco Charlton. But the, that's the difference, is that I, I wasn't necessarily the biggest fan of either pick, but to me, the difference with Leighton Vander Esch is I can swallow that one. That's a need. He's coming in. He's definitely your third-best linebacker, maybe your second-best right out of the gate, depending on how healthy Jalen Smith is. And he does have the ceiling to reach a, a, a really good football player. I just don't know that he's going to put it all together. My projection right now is that he's he's not going to be that guy. I, I project he'll be a good player, but you know, not a, a an all-world type player. But he could. The difference there is, like I said, with Taco Charlton, where he doesn't have the physical you know requirements needed to become that type of guy at defensive end. He's as flexible as a wooden spoon. So I mean, there's there's not much there that you can get out of Taco Charlton. So. Although I think the fans were equally kind of frustrated with both picks because Cowboys fans, a lot of them didn't want Leighton Vander Esch. And uh, while I think there's a general sense of kind of, eh, I don't know about this guy like there was with Taco, I think there's a greater chance that Leighton Vander Esch can be the guy they want. Now, you mentioned Taco and so on and so forth. I think the real problem is very clear, Bobby. The real problem is you guys drafted from Michigan. I just did it all. Yeah, yeah. Like, why? 
God. So yeah, I, I, yeah, I know you're from Ohio. So yeah, you're you're gonna be the go with yeah. But see, we we did t- did take Zeke number you four, and, and we did take Noah Brown in the sixth round. And so you know we're we're not Buckeye averse. And even though you know Taka was a bad pick, it, it's hard to get better value than they got out of Jordan Lewis in the third round last year. He was a really good player for them. So. Uh, you know, my dad, he, he grew up in Ohio, so he's always been a big Ohio State fan. So I, I sympathize. Uh, but overall, I mean, I, I don't care what school Taco Charlton comes out of. He is, I mean, he's got about as much bend as an actual taco. <laughs> All right. So we're almost done here. A couple quick, couple questions ago. I'm not sure the second one, second one will be that quick for you, though. I mean, it goes a pretty deep <laughs> But immediately, right, right where you see the team right now on paper, where do they stand? Can they compete in the NFC East? For a wild card or even gasp, you know, catch up to the Eagles. What's where do you stand with them? How many wins do they get? Um, they are the second best team in the NFC East, I think, right now on paper. Uh, they're still behind the Eagles. Uh, I, I don't think they're leaps and bounds ahead of Washington um, or New York for that matter. But but I think they're both discernibly better. So yeah, they're they're the second best team in the NFC East. Given that they are the second best team in the NFC East, yes, they could be in, you know, competition for a wild card spot because that's, you know, anybody who finishes second in their division is going to be hanging around on that territory. So, uh, yeah, I think they could. I don't know that they will. Um, I think, you know, they didn't do a lot to repair a lot of the problems from last season. So I still think potentially you're looking at a nine or 10 win team. Um, and that may be enough to get them into the playoffs. It may not. But, uh, I, I think that, Right now, I would project them as, like I say, second best team in the NFC East and right on the bubble for a wild card. All right, so here's my last question. This one's the deep one, okay? This, I, I, this is one that's been bothering me for a long time, and this goes back further than this offseason. This goes back 20-some years, okay? It's it hard to believe that it's been over 20 years since the Cowboys have won a Super Bowl. So what's been the major – yeah, I know, right? It's been a major <laughs> problem holding this franchise back. What, is it, what has that been? What has it been that major problem? Um, the Cowboys seem to hover between mediocrity and good football, but they're never able to get over the hump. So as a fan looking on the outside, okay, as someone who's watched this franchise, I grew up watching Jimmy Johnson's Cowboys with all the great years they had there. What on earth has happened to where the, these Cowboys have not been able to get back to a Super Bowl? Well, and I, I mean, I, I, the easy thing to say is it's incredibly difficult to win a Super Bowl. Uh, I mean, the Eagles took 50 plus years and they were contenders many, many of those years. Um, and so it, it's hard to win them. And it's it's especially hard to win them when when the salary cap was introduced, your team was breaking up and you were kind of, you know, screwed early on in that process. And then once you got out of that, you were in a growing phase for Jerry Jones, where he still hadn't been willing to relinquish power. And then as he kind of gave back a little bit, then. Uh, you know, there just just been some bad luck in certain areas. And then there have been some other years where they just weren't a good football team. Um, so, I mean, every year's kind of been a different reason as to why. I mean, their, their biggest years where they had opportunities to win uh, other than the, you know, season after the 95 Super Bowl. Uh, when you get closer or, you know, further away into the 2000s, the years where they were the closest were, uh, you know, 2007. They were hands down the best team in the NFC that year. Uh, they sent 13 players to the Pro Bowl. They went 13-3, and three and they ended up losing to the Giants at home. And the Giants go on, of course, to beat the undefeated Patriots. But, the, I mean, the Cowboys were incredible that year, and that game largely rests on Tony Romo. So 2007, if you're looking at what happened that year, that was Tony Romo came out and laid an egg against the Giants in the divisional game. 
2009 was a, a you know a number one defense or number two I think actually and they, you know they were strong on both sides of the ball but they just uh, they weren't better than Minnesota that year with Brett Favre so they got drubbed in the divisional round uh, and I also don't think Wade Phillips was necessarily the coach to lead them into the future and then you had a lot of mediocrity in between uh, 2014 uh, was honestly probably their best chance since the Super Bowl year at, at actually you know winning the Super Bowl. Um, but you know, we had the, the Des catch, no catch, but I mean, even if that's ruled a catch, Dallas still has to score. And even if they score, they have to stop Aaron Rodgers, which they've never shown an ability to do in crunch time. So I, I think you look at in 2014, the biggest thing is you tip your cap to the greatest player in the league right now and say, you know, you're not going to be able to do anything about that. And similarly same issue in 2016. They fell down a lot in 2016 to the Packers, and when they made their hard charge back, Aaron Rodgers was able to pull out, you know, another bunny rabbit from his hat and, uh, you know, bring them into field goal range, and, and Mason Crosby knocked that in, and they were able to go forward. But, I, I mean, 2016 and 2007, I think those two were the best teams in the NFC. Uh, 2014, I think, was their best opportunity just because of the weakness overall of the NFC. But, uh, you know, that's they've really only had three good chances. Otherwise, everything's kind of been... You know, out of balance, whether it be because of the mistakes of Jerry Jones or or injuries to players or just not being a great football team or whatever reason. Uh, but those three years, those were the main reasons that something went wrong. 07, it was Romo having a tough game against the Giants. 14, it was, uh, you know, just some bad luck and running into the Aaron Rodgers buzzsaw. And then 2016, same, was allowing the Packers to get up as large as they did and uh, then being unable to stop Aaron Rodgers once again. All right, Bobby, thank you so much for coming on. I'm hoping we can catch up again if, if the Rams happen to meet the Cowboys. We had so many great Rams-Cowboys games over the years, including last year, and it would be nice to catch up with you when they, when they meet again, hopefully sooner rather yeah, than later. Yeah, for sure. I, I, I'm ready. I'd love to see Wade Phillips. That'll be a real treat to see Dak have to go against Wade Phillips. I'm excited. Yeah, yeah. so am I. I'm excited. I that, that's a that, that that's a joke. I'm not excited. I'm excited. I'm excited. I'm excited. I'm excited. Should be. I'm excited. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. So again, folks, you can find Bobby on Twitter at Bobby Belt uh, TX. Also, check out the Cowboys Cast podcast. Very informative. I'm really an admirer of how much he loves the history. You guys know how much we love history over Rams talk. So you have a little bit of a kindred spirit for me. I love history. So um, that's why I'm a history teacher. There we go. Okay, Bobby. Again, thanks so much for coming on, and we'll talk to you soon. Hopefully. All right, thanks so much. I appreciate right, it. Take care. And my, my final thoughts to Cowboys offseason, though, I, I actually mirror Bobby's. Bobby's really got it, got it going pretty well in terms of a, a foot in the, on the uh, well, a finger in the pulse here of what's going on. I don't have a lot of faith in Jason Garrett either, and I don't want really to see how um, – I think he's actually being overly optimistic in the win. I'm seeing that as an 8-8, eight 7-9 eight, team, really. Okay, so before we introduce our next guest, we have to, we have to say hello and say thank you to our other sponsors here. The Gold Ram Barbershop. If you're looking to support one of your own in the Orange County area and, and like the old school barbershop experience, check out the Golden Ram Barbershop, 13755 Golden West Street in Westminster, California, 92683. Sal Martins opened up his shop as a shrine to the Rams on the day the team left for St. Louis and has kept the light on ever since. He's by appointment only, so give him a call at 714-894-RAMS at 7267. Use the promo code Talk so he knows we sent you and get a discount on an already affordable haircut. The Gold Ram Barbershop is open Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 6 p.m., and Friday, uh, sorry, Saturday, 7 a.m. to 4 p.m. One more time, get Sal a call at 714-894-7267. Folks, a visit to his shop is worth it just to enjoy all the brands and memorabilia there. 
The cell also provides an old school experience. It's Jesus it talks trans football, man. If you you see the movies of all those barbershop things, it's wonderful. Okay, trust me, you won't regret it. You even managed to make my blockhead look somewhat attractive. Okay, so here we go. Our next guest on the show, Sam Marco. Okay, he is he runs the Perfectville podcast. I love the name. He's really not letting us forget that the Dolphins are the only team ever finished undefeated. Um, Sam, you there? I am here. How are you guys doing? Oh, we're doing wonderful. How are you? I am doing all right, and I can't let anyone forget that we were perfect back in 1972 when I was negative 10 years old, because it's the only thing we have, sir. Uh, well, I didn't want to say that. I'm coming off my... The Rams are coming off a, a you know a 14-year stretch of doing nothing, so I can't I can't say anything to you. I got nothing. We have 45 years, so we have you beat. At least I saw your team win a Super Bowl, even though they were in St. Louis. I have not seen my team even reach the Super Bowl, let alone win it. So I have to be jealous of your 14-year drought with my 45-year drought. Yeah, but you know, at least in your 14-year drought, you didn't lose 10, no. 12, 13, 14 games every freaking year. No, we did one year. We went 1-15, and and the only reason we went 1 is because the quarterback legend of the Miami Dolphins, Mr. Cleo Lemon himself, in overtime... Got a pass somehow connected to Greg Camarillo, a Perfectville favorite here for us on our podcast. And they beat the Ravens in overtime to go 1-15. Otherwise, we would have been 0-16, and we still would have had the number one pick overall. But still, we didn't want to be the Detroit Lions. We didn't want to be the Cleveland Browns. We're very proud of our 1-15. We're very proud of that one. All right, well, now it's 2018, and you're not going to be 1-15 this year, I think, right? I, I hope not. All right, so we enter this season, I mean, it seems like, of late, a lot of the, the teams we've talked to have had serious question marks. We just got off the phone here with Bobby Bell from Cowboys Cast. His team has some question marks. The Dolphins are saying, they have a lot of question marks, especially on offense. How do you feel about your quarterback situation? What's Ryan Tannehill's status right now? Ryan, Ryan Tannehill right now has the hottest wife in the league, which as a Dolphins fan is important because it shows he makes good decisions. And I can prove it because we did draft Chad Henney, who has an ugly, hideous wife, and he wasn't a good quarterback. So I still have confidence in Ryan Tannehill performance off the field, and hopefully that will transfer to on the field. Uh, all joking aside, all Dolphins fans everywhere today it was the first day of OTAs, organized team activities, and Ryan Tannehill not only performed – he performed without a knee brace, so he doesn't have any limits at all physically at whatsoever after a devastating knee injury a year and a half ago by Calais Campbell the, at the time, Arizona Cardinals. Um, he's free and clear to go, man. So we have our starting quarterback back. We don't have Jake Cutler. We don't have Matt Moore. We have uh, at least, if nothing else, a middle-of-the-road starting quarterback in the NFL and Ryan Tannehill back for the Miami Dolphins. Well, one quick thing here before my next question. You missed the first part of the, the, the podcast here, um, so it's a little bit of a Michigan job, but where did Chad Henney go to college? Chad Henney went to college at Michigan. Uh, he Michigan. actually went, yeah, we drafted him the same year that we drafted Jake Long, ironically, number one overall after our 1-15 Cam Cameron-led season. So uh, we got him in the second round. He was sitting on the couch with his arm around something that was female, and at that point I knew it was a disaster. Was, this guy doesn't make good decisions. We're in for a long road here in Miami with Chad Henney. So, and the weird thing is, is, is I'm, I'm a Buckeye, so... If I get a chance to rag on Michigan a little bit on the show, I'm going to do it. And there's Chad Henney. You, you, you served that one up for me. Thanks a lot. There you Appreciate go. It. You knocked it right out of the park there. <laughs> All right. So in relation to Tannehill, though, are there enough playmakers on the offense right now to help take the weight off of him? 
You know, that is a good question. We're not sure. I mean, obviously, our biggest playmaker over the last five years, four years, I should say, was Jarvis Landry. Um, you can make a case that he's overrated. You can make a case that he's underrated. I'm a big Jarvis Landry fan. I hated to see him go, but it was actually time for him to go. Uh, I do think that they have put pieces around Ryan Tannehill for him to be successful. Um, I don't think they have a standout superstar. I'll put it that way. Devontae Parker, who is our now default number one wide receiver, he is not a superstar. The only time he actually did anything actually was against your Rams a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, but other than that, he's good for one game a season, and the rest of the time you're sitting there left scratching your head. Uh, so I don't think they have a superstar. I think the superstar has to be Ryan Tannehill, and that's what Adam Gase is trying to develop uh, with this offense. So no, right now they don't have a superstar. Uh, anybody that they can simply rely on. I do think we have a rookie tight end that could develop into that. Uh, but right now, uh, I think that is a question mark. Where is the ball going to go? Well, you mentioned Parker. And there was a significant amount of buzz coming out when he was drafted. And I I'm wondering what's been the problem with his development that he hasn't met those expectations. Yeah, the guy's just not aggressive enough. He hasn't uh, committed himself to the NFL. I mean, you know, there's a huge leap, as most football fans know, from college to the pros. I think basically once you get to the pros, you are dealing with the elite of the elite when it comes to talent, right? So even through a major university, you can get by with just your physical attributes. Uh, but once you hit the pros, you have to put the time in, you have to put the practice in, you have to diet right. I mean, this guy was cramping up during OTAs. He was cramping up during training camp. He's cramping up during the season because this guy just didn't drink water. Like when the nutritionist would talk to him for the Miami Dolphins, they'd say, well, what's your water intake? And he's like, I haven't had water in three days. Like, how does that happen as a professional athlete? So his diet's been bad. He doesn't have good practice habits. He was notoriously mic'd up a couple of seasons ago, and he was talking to the other wide receivers, and he was complaining that he couldn't get off the the man-to-man -man coverage off the line. And he's a big guy, and the guy that was covering him in that game was not a big guy. So there's concerns about his desire, I think, ultimately is what it is. But when he does have it on, when you push the right buttons with Devontae Parker and he's challenged, the guy is a beast. He's unstoppable, and it's really hard to defend him. The problem is he's only motivated two or three times a year so far through his first three or four seasons in the, in the NFL. And you mentioned Jarvis Landry. It's time for him to go. Why was it time for him to go? Well, Jarvis Landry is um, very passionate. He is a guy who... Uh, commands and demands the respect and the attention of everyone in the locker room, including the coaches, including the front office. Uh, he was our emotional leader. But at the same time, Adam Gase just did not like him. And it was evident from the very beginning when Adam Gase stepped on. It's not a guy that Adam Gase drafted. It's not a guy that necessarily Adam Gase wants in terms of that personality in his locker room. And of course, he's going to give you a bunch of coach speak about how he's, you know, he wants him, he wanted him, all that. But he was waiting for the first time that he could realistically get rid of Jarvis Landry and he took it and he hated him you know they hated him because they traded him to a team that's not even in the NFL a la the Cleveland Browns that's not a real football team and that's how you know they didn't like Jarvis Landry but his personality and Adam Gase just they clashed and I know it firsthand because I, I have happen to have a source with the Miami Dolphins and and they just did not get along and Adam Gase ultimately won that power struggle moving on with with Landry gone and they're they're moving people around they let Sue go we're gonna ask I'm gonna ask you about him later how did the Dolphins do in free agency, and were they able to address holes in the roster? You know, I think they addressed the holes in the roster with regards to um, in the locker room. And what I mean by that is uh, we had a phrase here that we used in Perfectville called culture shock. And that's exactly what happened is basically the Miami Dolphins on paper, you look at the talent that they let go. Jarvis Landry, Jay Ajayi, and Dominic Sue, Mike Pouncey, 
all of these guys they said goodbye to. And it wasn't because they aren't talented and that they aren't good football players. It's because they didn't have the personality to buy into a team concept. So what the Miami Dolphins are doing, what their strategy is, is to get players that have talent that satisfy needs, but also can help work together and hopefully build something bigger than what they are on individual parts and pieces. So you look at some of the players that they actually pick up. I mean, Danny Amendola, is he a guy that's going to set the world on fire? No, but he knows how to get it done. If you make the playoffs, this guy's playoff record is, insane. Josh Sitton, he's a guard. He's probably one of the elite guards that was out there available to them. He's a team guy. He's a glue guy. Albert Wilson, he's got some talent. He's 25 years old. He's a wide receiver out of Kansas City, the Kansas City program. He comes to the Miami Dolphins and he gives them that kind of shake and bake that Jarvis Landry had when he was here. Um, You know, there's not a superstar that's out there. They filled some needs, but I think more than anything, what they were trying to do is get veterans that could come to this team and coach up their young guys that they're hoping to mold into something uh, through the draft over the last, last couple of years. Well, you mentioned the draft. What about the draft? What were their best and worst picks, and what was the Dolphins' strategy for this draft? Yeah, I mean, the best way I can I can pick their strategy is they somehow were able to, and it's not necessarily – all on their own volition here, but certain things happened that dropped in their favor. And what the Miami Dolphins did, which I thought was really rare, I cannot remember a time where they did not have one trade to either go up or down or for future picks at all on all three of the draft days. They stayed put on all three days, which the Miami Dolphins and Mike Tannenbaum is notorious for trading draft picks here, there, and everywhere. They didn't do that. They stood put. And when they did that, the first pick they got was Minka Fitzpatrick out of Alabama. He's a safety. He's kind of a nickel cornerback. He gives them a talented piece that they can put around and move around in their defense. It gives them options. So one of the things that they did is they were filling needs, but they're able to thread that rare needle of filling needs with the most talented player on the board with a couple of different picks. So not only Minka Fitzpatrick, but also in the second round, Mike Jacecki out of uh, Penn State. This guy is an absolute physical beast. Uh, People say he can't even block people on Twitter, but that's not why we drafted him. We drafted him to be a seam ripper for Ryan Tannehill. He's ultimately, hopefully, going to develop into that Jarvis Landry replacement where he's getting the ball more than everyone else. Uh, we've never had a good seam ripping tight end for a very long time, especially not during Ryan Tannehill's tenure as quarterback. This guy is drafted to be that. So basically, they drafted pieces that were uh, meant to contribute right away. But at the same time, they're very talented pieces. They really didn't reach too often, at least not early in the draft process. Not till about round four or five did they really start reaching. Well, you said reaching. Who they reached for that was really kind of like, oh, boy, why'd they do that? Yeah, well, here's here's one that – my first one that I th- – thought was actually a uh, third round of uh, one of your guys, Mr. Ohio State, Jerome Baker. But you know what? I really like the Jerome Baker pick. You put him next to hopefully a, uh, a healing uh, Raekwon McMillan, who really kind of redshirted his freshman year in the pros because he tore his ACL. Uh, you put those two guys back there and you have a very young powerful, talented linebacking core. But one of the guys that I think they really did stretch on uh, is a guy named Cornell Armstrong. He's a defensive back of Southern Miss. He was in the sixth round. You know, Adam Gase, he drafts from Power 5 conferences. This guy's from Southern Miss. He's short. He's not a guy that's going to contribute this year. If he's going to contribute at all, it's probably going to be on Uh, special teams or because somebody got injured in front of him. So that was a little bit of a stretch. And of course, anytime you pick a kicker, uh, you clearly haven't done enough research because we did spend time uh, and a draft pick on a guy named Jason Sanders, the kicker out of New Mexico. And then we went and signed one as an undrafted free agent. So uh, anytime you're drafting a kicker, it's a stretch in my opinion. You sound a little pessimistic about some of the decisions that are being made by the front office this year. Um, What's your real take on them? 
Yeah. So you look, we, we're a comedy podcast. We love football, but we talk about football the way most of us talk about football around the water cooler on a Monday. Right. Mm-hmm. We know when the team sucks, the team sucks. When they're good, they're good. I'm actually pretty uh, positive about the Miami Dolphins, all things considered. Um, I think overall uh, they have a vision and that's all you can really ask for from a front office. It's really up to the coaching staff to execute that uh, vision in terms of uh, a playbook and strategy. And then it's up to those players to go out and actually do it. Um, in the past, they had some talented p- pieces, um, but man, it just never worked out. For some reason, the Miami Dolphins have like just the weirdest luck, whether it's Richie Incognito bullying people, uh, whether it's uh, Lawrence Timmons last year deciding not to show up for his first game and instead showing back up with the Pittsburgh Steelers, which is his old team, uh, whether it's a hurricane wiping out our bye week altogether. I mean, there's just weird stuff that happens to the Miami Dolphins. And when that happens, you need to have a consistent message. And I think Adam Gase brings that. So I love the fact that they actually have a game plan. Um, I'm not totally in love with the talent level on the Miami Dolphins, both on offense and defense. But I do think they have enough talent to win, uh, assuming a a few things happen that go their way. And that's just like every other team there. So I I wouldn't say I'm necessarily pessimistic. I think they're better than their six and 10 record from last year. I'll put it that way. I don't know how much better, but I think they're better. All right. Well, then let's go straight to where do the Dolphins stay in the AFC East right now? and, And can they compete for a playoff berth? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, we made the playoffs a couple of years ago. So according to recent math, that means we're not making the playoffs for at least another eight years. But, uh, you know, if if for whatever reason they're able to uh, go back to the future and maybe shorten that lifespan up a little bit with regards to playoff droughts, you know, I, I don't think they're going to win the, the division. I mean, obviously, until Tom Brady and or Bill Belichick decide to die of old age, uh, the New England Patriots, and rightfully so, are going to be uh, the favorites to win that division. In fact, the only team since the Tom Brady era began to win the AFC East was actually the Miami Dolphins under Tony Sperano and the Wildcat craze from years ago. That's the only time. Every other time has been the New England Patriots. So you have to assume that Tom Brady and Bill Belichick have not forgotten how to play football. They'll continue to be the kings of the AFC East. But after that, man, flip a coin. Uh, it's a crapshoot. The Buffalo Bills made the playoffs for the first time in about 75 years last year. And then all of a sudden they went ahead and just purged their roster of all the quarterbacks that were there, including Tyrod Taylor. And are now we're going to go forward with a rookie who may or may not be a good person who may or may not be a good quarterback. So you never really know. It's not a recipe for consistency in terms of being second place or a wild card contender. Plus it's Buffalo. They don't really have a history of being successful come, you know, winter playoffs which is weird since they're in Buffalo, New York. And then you have the Jets, who I don't care how many spices they put into their spice rack. You still have Todd Bowles as your head coach, which means he's serving up vanilla. It doesn't matter if it's defense. doesn't matter if it's offense. The Jets are not going to be great. So really, man, it, I, I could see one team being the Patriots as a lock for the playoffs, and I could see the rest of us being shut out. I, I think it's a crapshoot for second place. Um, I would say it's probably Buffalo. I think most people are considering Buffalo to be the second-best team in that division. And then after that, maybe the Jets, maybe the Dolphins. I think most people have the Dolphins in the cellar, which I, I don't see. I don't buy it. I think that's a, a national um, message that's being sent out there by people that aren't really paying attention to what is actually going on in Miami. But uh, it, it's it's a bunch of middle-of-the-road teams, to be honest. Seven and nine, eight and eight, nine and seven. If the Bills do well with A.J. McCarron, a quarterback, and, and Josh, I'll back him up. I, I I have beachfront property in Montana to sell you. I don't buy that either. I don't see him finish second place. I think Miami probably, probably finished second place. Well, honestly. look, it's 
yeah, it really does depend on what Ryan Tannehill is able to do or not do. I mean, like I said, he's playing and practicing right now without even a knee brace on, which is a huge, huge bonus, I think. But then again, last year, he was supposedly not needing surgery after tearing his ACL uh, a year and a half ago and then took a bad step out of bounds during training camp and was gone for the season. So um, until Ryan Tannehill steps onto an actual playing game, be it uh, you know preseason or regular season, we won't know for sure. But Ryan Tannehill is clearly a better quarterback than those two, even if they're more talented than him as a quarterback. They're rookies coming into a league that they've never played in before. Ryan Tannehill has been here for what? five, six years. He knows how to play in this game and he's a professional. He's Alex Smith essentially is what he is. And uh, you can win with Alex Smith if you have pieces around him. All right. So all those questions out there. Now I have a couple things for you in terms of, you know, Ram stuff. All right. Sure. Absolutely. What can you tell us about Mr. Sue? And you know why you mentioned earlier, why did the Dolphins cut him loose? Well, they cut Ndamukong Sue loose because he was scheduled to make about $45 billion this year, and they just couldn't afford him. I mean, quite honestly, Ndamukong Sue is one of those rare players, at least for me. I don't know about you, but for me, I'm a Miami Dolphins fan, and I hate every other player on every other team with very rare, limited exceptions. Ndamukong Sue was one of those exceptions. When he was with the Lions, I love the guy. If you're playing against him, you hate him. If he's on your team, you will go to the ends of the earth to defend the guy. He does get a bad rap. He is not as bad on the field as people make him out to be. However, uh, as I had mentioned that Jarvis Landry demands and commands the locker room, Ndamukong Sue at least demands the locker room. Uh, quite famously, when he got to Miami, he actually picked out his own locker, his own like corner of the locker room and said, you're not allowed to be here. This is only for me and Cameron Wake. Well, that could divide a locker room. And if you look at Ndamukong Sue on that Rams team with all of those personalities that you guys have brought in from free agency and trades and everything else, it would not take much to rub somebody the wrong way. So uh, Ndamukong Sue, insanely talented, one of the elite defensive tackles that's out there. If you look at his stats, it doesn't do what he does justice. The guy's gobbling up two or three uh, offensive linemen, tight ends, running backs, every single play. He allows you to do a lot of things creatively on defense. However, here is the issue that you guys will run into with Ndamukong Sue. He is so talented that if he feels that the scheme that you guys are running or the play that you guys have drawn up for that particular instance isn't to his liking, he will absolutely go out there and just freelance. And it's not to say that he won't be successful or they won't be disruptive or he won't be a good player, but he doesn't necessarily play in any sort of system other than Ndamukong Sue's system. And sometimes that can be frustrating when he decides to freelance and leaves a hole wide open and they actually just have like a, an option play and they hand it off to their running back and he just runs through a gaping hole. Um, but he's a talented player. He gets a bad rap. As Rams fans, you guys will love him if you don't already. Uh, the guy's great for a quote. He's very smart when it comes to football, so you'll probably learn something from him. And as a Dolphins fan, um, he's still technically a Dolphin until June 1st. I'm rooting for the guy. All right, well, what do you want to know about Robert Quinn? I just want to know what we can actually expect. So I actually, a good friend of mine happens to be a Rams fan. And when I told him that, hey, we have Robert Quinn, which, by the way, we now have him lined up with Mr. Flat Earther, not sure if dinosaurs roam the earth, loving Little Mermaid and everything else, Mr. William Hayes, we got those two reunited again, and it feels so good. I just don't know what to expect from the guy. I know he's been oft injured. I don't think he's the player that he once was or was expected to be, but I feel like he can contribute if he's in a rotation, and the Miami Dolphins have always been good about having rotational pieces on their defensive line. So really, that's what I want to know. If we limit the amount of snaps he has, first of all, is he better against the pass or the run? And number two, if we limit the amount of times we have him on the field, can he be an effective piece to an otherwise talented, deep defensive line for the Miami Dolphins? Well, let me ask you this. In terms of the, the scheme you're running right now, is it, well, how do I say it? 
is it pass rush friendly in terms of, you know, from your point of view, Cameron Wake there, how friendly is it for pass rush? So Cameron Wake has essentially been our pass rush game for many, many seasons now. The guy is 35, and you can't bet against him until he decides that you should bet against him. I did that famously a couple of years ago after he tore his Achilles, and he came out and got like 11 sacks the year after that and pretty much called me and said, you're an idiot, and he was right. <laughs> so, you know, as far as that goes, we have Cameron Wake, and everyone else kind of gets the leftovers, and that's where I think maybe Robert Quinn – if he's got somebody on the other side that can um, demand a double team like Cameron Wake still does, uh, can he be effective? But to answer your question, it's kind of middle of the road, which I know I don't like to sit on a fence here for for a take, but uh, we don't have the best pass rush ever, but they're actually pretty stout up front, uh, all things considered. Let me, let me answer this way. Robert Quinn was at a 4-3 pass rush defensive end for almost his entire career. Mm -hmm. Now, Wade Phillips comes over. He runs kind of a modified 4-3, almost like a 3-4. And so he's on the outside as a linebacker sometimes, moving around. And he did not adapt well to that particular scheme, okay? And I don't know if some of it also is you know, remnants of injuries from the past, of back injuries from the year before, so on and so forth. But Robert Quinn really didn't turn it on until, I would say, halfway through the year. Mm. And then if you, if you look at the numbers, the stats go up. And... You know, so he he's slow to adjust to a scheme. So that's why I ask what kind of scheme are you running. And if you're in a 4-3, a traditional 4-3, and you play him, I wouldn't rotate him, I would play him. Okay. Then you're going to get – he still has it. He showed it at the end of the year. He still has it. The problem with him wasn't that he didn't have it. The problem was in terms of adjusting to a 3-4, modified 4-3, 3-4, it was harder for him. He didn't work out well. He's not that kind of a player. And that's why the Rams were willing to trade him. Realistically, the way his contract worked, he could have easily, they could have easily found a way to um, renegotiate his contract to make it more cap friendly. There wasn't a whole lot of dead money on his numbers anyways. But they traded him instead. I mean, that, should, that tells you a little bit about it wasn't really the money with him. It was the scheme, what they're trying to run. If he's in a 4-3, if you're putting the book in, and you keep that man healthy, he's going to be productive. He's only 27. Last yeah, I, I mean, okay. that's that's the thing. You know, you think of Robert Quinn and he's a name that's been on everyone's radar for a long time, even going back to college at North Carolina. And you think the guy's got to be older. And you're right. I think he's in his late, you know, mid to late 20s. And when you think about that, going, go, man, if he can fully recover and what you're saying actually gives me hope. If his stats are looking like they were trending up after his injuries and after he was able to adjust. And it makes sense that it would take some time for him to adjust. He did go to North Carolina. He's a big dummy, but that's OK. So if we <laughs> if we were if we get him in and we are patient with him and and we say, this is what you're going to do. Or if we give him very basic instructions, see quarterback, hit quarterback, uh, we might be okay with him there. You're giving me help here. I like it. Well, he made it also, he made it very clear. And I, I forget who wrote it over there, down there at the, um, on the Sun Sentinel, who wrote the article that he, in that article, he said that he was, well, let's just say, quote unquote, uh, paraphrasing here, I think. Um, he's not a West Coast guy. He made it pretty clear at the end there he wasn't happy with the Rams. He wasn't happy in LA. He was an East Coast guy. And I think that'll also be a motivator for him. He's a guy who generally will not need to be motivated except for when he's not in his scheme. So give him a good home, put him in the right scheme, and you do everything you can to keep him healthy. And I think he will produce. I think he'll produce quickly. I think if you – when the Rams were awful, this guy was still producing. And he was getting – you know, he was getting double blocked just like, you know, any, any other star on the line is going to be. He was getting – he was facing double teams – 
sometimes triple teams, and he was still getting off the edge. And he showed some of that later in the year last year. He just was not a fit for Wade Phillips' system, and that's how you got what you got. Oh, well, you know, look, uh, not a lot of people necessarily can adjust from a 4-3 to a 3-4. If he was able to do that, even if it was a little bit slow on the uptake, you know, that does give me hope. And like you said, him being in his, you know, 20s still, he's going into his physical prime. If his injury history is behind him, he could be a good fit for the Miami Dolphins. So uh, I think most Dolphins fans are okay with it. We're not like over the moon about getting Robert Quinn, but we're not against it either. We're not like, hey, this is going to set us back at all. It's not, he's kind of a middle of the road trade for us. We were kind of like, oh, cool, Robert Quinn, that's a name. Uh, but I don't think most of us know exactly what to expect from Robert Quinn here in South Beach. And by the way, I do take offense about him not being a West Coast guy. As we all know, West Coast is the best coast. I am a West Coast guy. I'm, I'm very close to the Rams stadium. Not right now. I'm up in Northern California currently. Uh, but he's wrong about that. But that's okay. He can be wrong about that as long as he brings it on the field for the Miami Dolphins. Oh, I, I got to be honest. I was actually offended when he said what he said. Especially with the Rams, because you know he made some mistakes out there. He got busted for a DUI yep. when the team was in St. Louis. Um, the, the Rams took a huge risk on him. He had a brain tumor, and the Rams still took him in the first round of that draft. That's a huge, huge risk they took on him. They paid him all that money, and they kept him with the team for all these years. You know, so when he made the comments he made, I was actually pretty offended by it. A little, a little calmer now, but back then. I was like, dude, you understand? And, I, and I've interviewed him before. I've, I've actually spoken with him, you know, I think after his rookie year. And I like him a lot. And that's why I was so disappointed in the attitude that he took because it's a business. It's like he forgot that this was a business. And I'm hoping as time goes on, he'll, you know, because he's still a major player in Rams history the last few years. I hope the team can welcome him back as a, as a person who, was, who wore the uniform one day. And, and uh, you know, but I, I hope anyways. No, nah, you guys you guys do well with your history. I remember going down and watching the Rams-Dolphins game a couple of years ago, which, by the way, I cannot wait for your guys' new stadium to open because, look, uh, as many people as you can cram into that god-awful stadium that you call your hometown right now, those seats are not made for professional football fans. Those are college co-ed seats. They're like 12 inches wide. I was like crammed in there. I'm not a fat guy. And I was like, I can't even get out of here. I'm wedged into this thing. Yeah, uh, yeah, but yeah. you guys had a bunch of old uh, old Rams players there. Uh, you guys represent them well. You guys treat them well. So at some point down the road, uh, even if he said some bad things about the Rams or, or you know disparaging remarks, I think you guys do a pretty good job as a fan base of welcoming your own back. So uh, I don't think that's an issue for you guys. Uh, and I hope not. I hope. All right, so Sam, let the folks here know where they can follow you. I am very interested in, in uh, spending some time on your po- hearing your podcast now because, uh, man, you were a heck of an interview. Thanks a lot for, for being so good. Oh, I appreciate that. Yeah, we actually have a uh, we come out weekly. It's called Perfect Bill. You can find us at welcome to perfectville.com. It's about 30 minutes. It's basically myself and a former uh, football player, Mr. Chris Cullen, who actually lives in North Carolina, not too far from where Robert Quinn uh, attempted to go to college. And, uh, you know, we just talk about the Miami Dolphins. We talk about what's going on in the league, and we we keep it lighthearted. You know, we we both have uh, families, we both have careers. I'm a stand-up comedian by day or by night, as it were. Um, so we've got other things on our minds. So we talk about it, we throw it out there, we enjoy uh, people who who love the show, and uh, we have some things out there. We have. Um, koozies for your beer uh, so when the dolphins lose you can actually drink and keep your hand nice and warm instead of it getting uh, frosty hands as we like to call it but you can find us at welcome to perfectville.com you can follow us on twitter at perfectville pod and then you can find me if you guys like me for whatever reason at tiger comedy you can find my comedy tour dates and everything else i got going on all right so again sam thanks so much for coming on uh hopefully sooner rather than later we'll be able to get get it back on board again and talk some more football great conversation 
Hey, if nothing else, we both hate the San Francisco 49ers. So uh, oh, dead right. There you go. My, you know, do you want me to go egg them? I'm, I'm right down the street from their stadium right now. I can just go throw some eggs right at the front door if you like. Can you, can you do the egg design in the, in the shape of our logo, Rams Talk? I, I'll paint a little. I'll paint Rams Talk <laughs> on the eggs, and I'll fire that thing, and I guarantee I'll get it closer than Jimmy Garoppolo gets it to his wide receivers next year when he's played. By the way, I should point out, uh, one of your own was at one of my shows here in San Francisco recently. I was at Cobb's Comedy Club, and uh, mm-hmm. Mr. Marcus Peters was in the crowd. Uh, he is a local to the Bay Area scene and he was actually in the crowd and came up to me afterwards and we had a nice conversation and he's looking forward to being on the Rams here uh, this upcoming season. Oh, we're looking forward to having him. And he was hilarious yesterday at the, uh, I think it was yesterday with the OTA press meeting when, he, when they said about Aaron Dahl, he's like, pay the man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What are you guys doing? I don't, you know, trade us another one of your defensive tackles, guys. We'll make room for you. Pay that guy. It's no question. Pay them. Pay him. Pay him now. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Sam. Thanks so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Uh, thank you, guys. Have a good one. You too. Take care now. What a amazing interview that was. I really enjoyed Sam. I mean, hopefully, we have reason to talk football again. I was that was a lot of fun. Uh, I am in agreement too. Both both folks tonight. I really appreciate their honesty in terms of where they are the team's problems. I do believe that Miami is the uh, the next team out there in terms of the AFC East. Uh, the Jets. I, I am not so sure how I feel about where they're going to be. And so on and so forth. So, you know, I, I look forward to talking with the Jets guy and get an idea of where they stand as well. All right. And a word from our sponsor. It's just about summertime in Southern California, which beats sun, hot weather, and visits to the pool. Well, if you're looking to remodel, resurface, or even put in a new pool, check out Jayhawk Pool Plastering. control what's outside your home, but you can control what comes in. Because Clorox disinfecting wipes kill 99.9% of viruses and bacteria, including COVID-19 virus, when used as directed on hard, non-porous surfaces. So whether it's from dirty doorknobs, dirty shoes, or something else, outside germs won't stand a chance. When it counts, trust Clorox. Kill Pseudomonas, Salmonella, and Influenza virus type A2. Kill SARS-CoV-2 on hard, non-porous surfaces. Use as directed. You can't control what's outside your home, but you can control what comes in. Because Clorox disinfecting wipes kill 99.9% of viruses and bacteria, including COVID-19 virus, when used as directed on hard, non-porous surfaces. So whether it's from dirty doorknobs, dirty shoes, or something else, outside germs won't stand a chance. When it counts, trust Clorox. Kill Pseudomonas, Salmonella, and Influenza virus type A2. Kill SARS-CoV-2 on hard, non-porous surfaces. Use as directed. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.